0: Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Well, welcome back, my friend. And uh, this, is, this is a little bit different because COVID has struck again in our area and with our podcast team as Seton has been in contact with somebody positive with COVID. So we are not in studio for the beginning of this, but when we get to our guest, We will be in studio and our guest on the phone. I am Matt Harris, and uh, I just mentioned Seton Tucker, co host of the Impact of Influence podcast. You can reach us through Murdoch Podcast on Facebook or MurdochPodcast.com or Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. Let's get into the new charges against Alec, and uh, you've read the General, the Attorney General Alan Wilson's uh, report update us on the latest on the charges.
1: Before we get into that, I think we need to mention that Alec's request to lower the $7 million bond has been denied, so he remains in jail. The South Carolina grand jury announced 27 new charges against Alec Murdoch. It includes 21 counts of breach of trust with fraudulent intent and six counts of computer crimes. And these new charges are almost $3 million. If you add up the other indictments from November and December, that's $9 million that he's been accused of misappropriating. So on um, the attorney general, you could look at each separate charge, and there are four of them. And so we get a little bit more information about the victims. The first charge was Natasha Thomas. Uh, it was in Hampton County. It stems from 2011, and there were some settlement proceeds in the amount of $325,000. So there was a check from Palmetto State Bank from the PMPED. Client trust account. And out of these funds, Murdoch purchased a money order payable to a family member. The second charge was Hakeem Pinkney, and that was in 2011. And we actually heard about that in the bond hearing, in which Alec was seeking to have his bond reduced from $7 million. And this, we talked about this in a previous episode. This was an auto accident which left Hakeem paralyzed, and allegedly the proceeds went into the fake forge account. So the third one we have. Arthur Badger, and he hired Alec Murdoch to represent him after his wife was killed in an auto accident. And he received a settlement for almost $400,000. So Alec allegedly wrote checks from this Palmetto State Bank account, and there was a $75,000 check where he purchased another money order. Um, He also made out a $150,000 check to Palmetto State Bank, where he put those funds back into another conservator account where Murdoch was allowed to borrow from. So he used money from Badger to go into another account. Yeah, so that was pretty outrageous. And it, this happened a couple of times. They go into it. You can read it on their website if you want to get all the details. It's definitely very shocking. It's quoted in the filing that he sent money to wire to a company and obtain cash. I'm not sure exactly what this means, but it does seem almost like this Ponzi scheme where he was borrowing money, but then he was also using, he was paying his own personal debts. So there was another charge from October 2015 in Allendale County, and Dean Martin received a settlement for $338,000, and the funds were deposited into the alleged fake Forge account.
0: When this first happened, you know, way back to, I guess, right after the Labor Day, murder, suicide, alleged for hire plot, weird thing, right out of the gate, people were saying $15 million. Maybe as much as twenty million, which would mean there could be a lot more money coming down the road that is missing.
1: There's more charges expected to be filed, so yeah. this this could just be the tip of the iceberg.
0: And where is all this money? Is always going to be the huge question, and it does appear he was paying, you know, somebody a debt off, robbing Peter to pay Paul because he was running up debt for some reason. And I, the, the story's going to be has been opioids, but it is hard to imagine. This much money in that short of a time going to opioids. It's really hard to imagine.
1: So that's where we're going to get our answers when we find out where this money trail. And our guest that we talked to later in this episode, as a forensic accountant, can kind of give us some insight of how people go about tracking this crazy amount of money that's missing.
0: It is an amazingly crazy amount of money that is missing. Before we get to our guest, we also have some other news that has uh, broken uh, about Alec.
1: Right. So Vicki Ward, who is a reporter who is working on a documentary about this case. And we actually mentioned her in a previous episode. There is some controversy surrounding her with a leaked mediation document from the Mallory Beach boating accident. We talked about that. So go back and listen if you haven't. There were some pictures of Mallory Beach's body that came out in a video and people were very upset about it. In her article, she says that Dick Harpootlian had called the jail to attempt to set up a meeting and the response was the entire facility is under quarantine for COVID. So, I guess some of the things that they wanted to discuss with Alec, the topic of discussion were the names of people who received checks from Curtis Edward Smith. So, mm-hmm. maybe that seems pretty big news that we're going to find some information out about who received some of these funds. The other thing that she said, she gave some more details on the murders of Maggie and Paul. She said that they were both reportedly brutally murdered with two different weapons. We knew that. But Paul was felled by a shotgun aimed at his chest. Maggie was shot by an automatic rifle. Her neck nearly severed, according to someone who saw the police photographs. That sounds pretty gruesome. I know her family has got to be wanting answers for this. The other thing that was interesting to me is we had heard some mention at the hearing where Alec was requesting to lower his bond from $7 million about these jailhouse phone calls. So, in her article, she also mentions that Alec reportedly told Buster to spend $5,000 on golf clothes.
0: I don't know how he could spend $5,000 on golf clothes. If the people in charge of his money have to approve of everything, that's hard to imagine them saying he could do $5,000 on golf clothes. But who knows? if there's a workaround in that or some way, right? Because you do have these attorneys who are in charge of all the spending that takes place. So they said specifically $5,000 for golf clothes. I can't imagine they'd say, okay. But that doesn't mean that he might not have labeled it something else or Alec was telling him to go ahead and do it. Maybe Buster tried, but they they rejected it. We We don't know. But it does show how unaware, I think, Alec still is of the situation and of the fact that he does not have this amazing control over this money that he believes he does, unless there's some shenanigans going on. Because when we heard on the, on the bond hearing, we heard that he was talking on the jailhouse phone about the ability to spend money, get family members money, you pay back money, just willy nilly about, about money. And that just seems unbelievable that he's still talking that way.
1: It also seems kind of crazy to me that you could actually spend $5,000 on golf clothes. I mean, I know they were that expensive. I mean, to me, that would seem like that's probably a whole lot of, you know, golf shirts.
0: Yeah, that's true. I was thinking golf everything, but just clothes. You're right. That does seem a little.
1: It says golf clothes. I mean, I guess clubs can be expensive. I mean, I'm not a golfer, so I don't know. But golf shirts, I mean, you would need that many golf shirts.
0: Like your shirts pants socks shoes Yeah, it seems like a lot to get for five thousand dollars at least in the world we live in maybe not in the murdoch world five thousand dollars and this might be normal for a trip to the old pro shop i want to go back to the eddie smith check thing the question is looks that they're looking into who the checks were made out to in the whole eddie smith debacle eddie smith was of course the one who uh Alec claims he hired a suicide for hire plot, but Eddie Smith says that's not true. There's a whole episode devoted to that. But are they saying that Eddie Smith was writing out checks to people? Is that what you're saying?
1: The article says is among the topics of discussion, according to Griffin, are the names of people who received checks from Curtis, Eddie Smith. So I think that that is going to possibly help us lead to, A money trail. And to me, that was the biggest takeaway of this article.
0: Yes. If Eddie was even aware of those checks, or were they really written by him? Were they forged? And you have to think that money is tied at some way, some shape, or form to the murders of Paul and Maggie. Doesn't say who, about saying who did, who committed the murders, but with 15, 20 million possibly out there, we don't know where it is. It's hard to imagine. That there's not some tie in, but we shall see.
1: So, I think it's the perfect time to talk to a forensic accountant because that's going to be the person who is tracking this great deal of money. So, Matt, let's introduce him.
0: Uh, we're joined by, and we're honored to have, a James Chip Cottrell from, well, from a lot of things. Nice lengthy bio we have here, which is great. That tells you that this guy knows what he's talking about. Unlike us sometimes. Chip's a retired senior partner at Deloitte, the largest professional services firm in the world. Currently a director of ancillary services at the firm of Holland & Knight LLP based in DC. Also serves as an affiliated professor at Stockholm University in Sweden. He's also a certified public accountant, a member of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Chip's conducted well over 120 forensic and related investigations into financial and white collar crime his extensive experience in a broad array of leadership, business operations, consulting, and accounting areas, including risk, regulatory, compliance, and governance matters, a forensic accountant and auditor for over 40 years. He serves as Deloitte's Global Chief Ethics Officer and was a member of the Global Forensic and Risk Executive Committee of that firm. Chip's a recognized and published leader in oversight, risk management, corporate governance, Uh, anti-corruption, accountability, transparency, ethics, and compliance issues, and is a frequent lecturer in academia and boardrooms around the world. He has acted in fiduciary and receiver capabilities and locations around the world as well, with a recent focus on AI, cyber, and analytics, and his background as a forensic accountant He has served as a co-chair of the UN Global Compact Committee on Anti-Corruption as a long-standing member of the G20B20 Anti-Corruption Working Group and was a global project partner for the World Economic Forum's anti-corruption and geopolitical initiatives. Over the past several decades, Chip has been actively involved in promoting and designing beneficial ownership transparency policies and systems. He's worked on numerous white collar crimes and other investigations on behalf of clients, including theft of client funds, insurance fraud, foreign corrupt practices violations, sexual harassment charges, humanitarian safeguarding violations, and other financial malfeasance. Uh, also, kleptocrats, asset tracking, and recovery, other stolen asset tracking and recovery. And we are thrilled to have you here, Chip. Uh, welcome to the Impact of Influence podcast.
2: Uh, thanks, Matt and Seaton. It's a pleasure to be here. appreciate the invitation.
1: So I think we should actually just start with the basics. Can you tell our listeners exactly what a forensic accountant is?
2: Well, sure, Seton. TV shows have gotten forensic in people's minds, uh, whether or not it's NCIS or it's any of the other series of shows that look at particular ways of using science to evaluate the facts and scenarios. And really, a forensic accountant is just taking accounting and uh, using a scientific uh, study of facts and figures and see whether or not there were possible legal breaches, whether or not accounting procedures and findings, uh, are they valid in the eyes of the law or rules of particular company or compliance issues or otherwise.
0: I have a question about that. Did you ever think that being a CPA would be so cool? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Matt? That's a good question because
2: when I first became a CPA over 40 years ago, you know, it was about numbers. It was about spreadsheets. It wasn't even about computers at that point. I clicked in very shortly after I uh, started working into the concept of doing investigations into accounting matters, and that really... Uh, started a whole level of my career that I could not have possibly imagined when I was an undergraduate back in 1977.
0: I don't want CPAs writing me letters and saying I, I called their profession not cool. You're cool people. <laughs> no, it's it's a good spot. Yeah, it is, Seton.
1: Yeah, so it's been reported that PMPED, which is now known as the Parker Law Firm, has hired a forensic accountant. We know a receiver has been appointed to oversee Alex's Finances, and that there are multiple investigations by state and federal authorities. So is there any difference into who can conduct the investigation?
2: It varies upon the objectives. At the end of the day, it's about getting facts. It's not about interpreting the law. It's not about deciding whether someone has done something wrong or right. At the end of the day, it goes back to the court. I think that's something that John talks about quite a bit, your legal specialist. But the uh, forensic accountant that was hired by PMPED is likely looking at a wide range of documents and information everything from things that are called general ledgers where you keep the records of the business keep the records of their partnership as well as uh, some of the trust funds more likely than not and the bank accounts and you know it's about movement of cash and you've had others on the on your podcasts uh, and programs that have talked about uh, the movements of this money. And it's about following the money in this instance. And that's also the scenario when you look at the state and government authorities. And they're using very similar types of procedures and processes to evaluate what the true facts are. And did this money get moved from here to here? And how did it get moved? And why did it get moved? Who authorized it to be moved? And where did it go after it was moved the first time? As it relates to the receiver, though, it's a little bit different circumstance. The receiver has got a fiduciary responsibility, uh, if I understand it correctly, in these circumstances and is overseeing the the funds that are under his charge. And in this instance, it would be Alex's and the family finances. And he would want to know what the fact patterns are in this and understand um, how the money that he has, is responsible for as, as the receiver and his uh, ability to evaluate whether or not some of the the outgoings that he has to approve are reasonable and would be expected to be reasonable and within the the bounds of the responsibilities of the receiver. In in uh, receivers can be put in place in many different instances and their responsibilities are really dictated by the series of charges that are given to them by the various authorities. In this instance, it would be the court um, uh, having pointed the receiver over Alex's, uh, finance, Alex's family finances.
0: There's multiple investigations. There's state and government, of course, we've mentioned, but would they each have a forensic accountant or would they have one or do they have two? I mean, you don't know specifically, but in general... Would they each have one and they cooperate with each other, or is there just one person that oversees the whole thing?
2: Generally, it's not one person that oversees the whole thing. I've been involved in broad-ranging investigations where there's been collaboration where the parties agree upfront, let's rather than have five or six forensic accountants or uh, or investigators following the same kinds of trails that there's a level of cooperation, the information is shared. In this instance, however, because of the burden of responsibility that, in some instances, the state and and the local government authorities are pursuing as it relates to prosecution. So you you're end up looking at, all right, where, where is this information? How is this information going to be used? Part of it might be the fact that insurance monies went from one account to another account, and then were transferred to a third account or transferred to a fourth account. And in this instance, PMPED will ultimately be concerned about whether or not those movements and transfers were in some way illegal or potentially not in accordance with their fiduciary responsibilities. But they want to get the facts first. And the objectives of of the particular ends might characterize the level of cooperation as well as the types of procedures that might be used by the individuals that are conducting the work along the way.
1: Well, what kind of tools do they have available to them that help them in this investigation?
2: That's a really good question, Seton. They use uh, today, particularly since most records are electronically oriented, there's a lot more use of artificial intelligence. Um, you heard your guest a couple of weeks ago that was talking about any money laundering uh, speak specifically about um, how some of the sophisticated The difference between the sophistications of of various organizations based upon essentially artificial intelligence and computer-generated scenarios where they're evaluating the probabilities of uh, fraud or they just uncover different things. But it gets down to the basics. It's how, the way in which something might have gone wrong. It's, It's the where. Uh, At what point in the process uh, might there have been problems and maybe diversion of money or otherwise? It's the what, is this intentional, or was it a mistake? You know, a lot of times things happen because there was a mistake. Someone put an extra zero on something or, or routed it to a different bank account, and that was maybe a mistake as opposed to being very intentional. It also goes to the why. What was the motive for it? And in this particular case, it looks like there may be even hundreds of situations where there have been diversions of funds uh, from one bank account to another and 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 payments made and and, you know, and what was the motive behind that? And then who did it? Uh, you know, who ultimately is responsible for it? Who ultimately was a fault? Who's culpable for participating along the way? But the tools that are there are, really uh, focus around uh, skepticism and whether or not that's professional skepticism as an individual, which is something that we talk a lot about in the profession. And CPAs are are, are really, it's drilled into them to be uh, effectively professional skeptics. At the same time, it's developing a, a series of fact patterns and events that may or may not lead someone to draw the same conclusions. That's why in the instances where they're using computers and uh, software that is really quite sophisticated today, I mean, we're talking material changes in the last five years. It took 20 years, and then in the last five years, it's changed. And now it's changing so that it's almost overnight. And so this, this information is being processed in milliseconds and it's giving you indications saying, okay, this might, be, th- this might be a problem. Maybe you ought to take a look at it. Maybe a human needs to take a look at this. We've identified these as, as outliers. So the, the, the tools are pretty much focused around those kinds of issues, and um, there are as, you can't really understand how sophisticated they are.
1: Let's say uh, these forensic investigations are able to locate the funds. What happens then?
2: The information is documented appropriately so that it can be used in this instance, most likely in a court of law. In the case of PMPED, they want to make sure that they're doing the right thing. They've stated at least publicly that they want to try and um, make sure that their clients are, are made whole. So they're using that information to make decisions about restitution, or maybe talking to third other parties and saying, well, maybe this went astray, this didn't go astray. In the case of the, the state and local governments, and more uh, likely than not, could be SLED, it could be the FBI and, and others that have got forensic accountants and other forensic uh, specialists on their teams. And um, they're developing a case that they might maybe use to take something to court, to make a decision to allow... A prosecutor to decide whether or not they're going to take a matter to court or not. So, you've had some of uh, your guests talk about the uh, scenarios where there's a chain of custody on information and data and even uh, you know evidence. Well, the stuff that comes out of accounting and forensic accounting a lot of times are uh, is is evidence and could be used in a court of law. And so there are information trails and this documentation is actually there's a science to making sure that all the information that comes out of this is done appropriately and documented appropriately and so that when someone looks at this say okay these guys did did a really thorough job because there might be there will be decisions potentially at a court by a jury or a judge and or a combination of the both that says okay the, we're going to make a decision based on this information so it is it's really important to see that and this information is treated as if it were evidence in a court of law
0: uh let's go to uh, offshore stuff you hear about that a lot in movies and tv and in the paper does it happen a lot is it easy to find and you mentioned about how everything has changed a lot in the last 5 years does that fall under that as well, how in the last five years has it become easier or more difficult to trace offshore money? Oh, Matt, this is an area
2: that continues to explode. One of the, the uh, challenges that has been uh, we've seen in the in the last 25, 30 years has been the explosion of offshore accounts. And you've seen a number of changes uh, over the last 15 or 20 years, which have attempted, at least here in the U.S. and in other more developed countries, to address the fact that people are hiding money. Now, I'm not saying that all of the transactions that using offshore accounts, uh, people are doing that, but there's more than a fair number um, that cause a lot of the governments and regulatory authorities and oversights to have a second thought about whether or not the particular individuals might be involved in in uh, nefarious activities. Or I might point rather to to uh, a couple of, of recent scenarios that kind of hit the press in a, in a big way that will bring this home. And one is called the Panama Papers, and uh, where there were a lot of people's uh, details, the accounts, the background emails talking about uh, setting this up a were, were leaked to uh, the press. And, and there's a group of international journalists that collaborate from around the world to investigate these kinds of malfeasance and bad actors. More recently, it was uh, something called the Pandora Papers that uh, are, was actually more documents than were released in the, in the uh, uh, Panama Papers. And not all of the scenarios... Are illegal. In fact, most are not. It is legal to have offshore accounts. It is legal as long as you're paying the tax and you declare it. Moving money around the world is is a lot easier from a, a technical perspective. What you're finding a lot, and I've been waiting to hear whether or not some of this has come out of this particular case. Is that um, people are using Bitcoin or and other types of currencies to hide the movement of money? I think that your guest a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about money laundering alluded to the fact that one of the big concerns is that people who put money into into Bitcoin and and into alternative currency tokens or or otherwise some of these things that are really popular at the moment, it's very difficult to trace those and. Um, that in and of itself is probably a, as big a concern as anything. And I think that that you're going to see a lot of focus in the next three or four years looking at that. I'm not saying that this is the case here, but it wouldn't surprise me necessarily, um, particularly it's it's used in almost every uh, situation where the, the U.S. government at least is finding these circumstances that people have been using Bitcoin and other type of currencies. But most of the people out there, though, are using these currencies in a totally legitimate and legal way. It just makes it a lot more difficult. And in many instances, the governments are paying catch up here rather than getting ahead of it.
1: So what happens like if they do discover that there are funds in an offshore account? How do you go about recovering those funds?
2: This is really a collaboration at a number of different levels. And it's a lot more sophisticated collaboration than it than it used to be even 10 or 15 years ago essentially you've got to go and prove in that jurisdiction that those funds are there uh, belong to someone other than the person that uh, or, or corporation or organization that has their name associated uh, with it and and I'll use uh, you know let's say there's a country called antarctica and there isn't a country called antarctica Uh, i know that but you think that there are funds there well you've you've got to go and effectively sue in the in those jurisdictions to have those funds released there are lots of protocols that have become sophisticated over the last 15 or 20 years to help you trace the assets those assets as well as to um litigate on a less costly basis and less timely basis to to get this. The burden of proofs, though, is still pretty high. If you think that there are someone else's money that has been stolen and put in your bank accounts, um, you've got to be able to trace it. And that's another area where forensic accounting uh, comes into play because the investigations that occur as part of that process um, are really integral. Uh, and the documentation that comes out of those investigations to support the case to apply for uh, those changes. I don't know that I've heard uh, that any of these that there have been offshore funds and accounts in this instance, but but if there if there are, it would put a new level of complexity on this, and likely what you're adding is a degree of time and the time value of money too to get the assets back.
0: I want to get into the psychology of white-collar crime and stuff at a moment, but one last thing along this route is to the people like us who are seeing that there may be 13 million missing, 15 million, We million. They're not saying that much yet, but that's been bantied about. Is that an unusual amount And uh, in your investigation and in your work? And if you had anything that you're allowed to talk about that is an example that might be of... Similar amounts of money or a similar type case.
1: Or
2: more. Or more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, I'm not authorized for professional reasons to talk about specifics. I can give generalities in two specific instances. One, earlier on in my career, when trust fund monies were misappropriated at a law firm, at at a relatively large law firm. It had over a thousand people that worked in it. And it was an investigation that went on for about a year and a half to try and find out how this happened because it had occurred over a period of 15 years. So there are some potential parallels. I'm not saying that there was uh, in this instance, although I know that there have been some admitted uh, issues here. And that investigation, though, the records were not computerized and they were all manual and it took a long time. We did ultimately, we think we got to the bottom of where all the money went as part of that process. And it involved someone who uh, felt entitled to uh, this because he wasn't being paid like he was like he'd expected to be paid. And he had a lifestyle that was that he was trying to promote. So there were interesting parallels there. Then another case that I would mention is malfeasance involving an insurance company and um, the burning down of a major manufacturing facility In that instance, the forensic accountants worked with the forensic scientists that look into and and investigate fires to try and get to the bottom of what really drove a fire. And then we worked along, in this instance, it was a really interesting level of cooperation between the scientists that did that work um, and the insurance company that had their own forensic investigation teams on behalf of their company. And our client was the one that felt that they were potentially in the wrong and someone from within the organization who had financial gain uh, to uh, potential financial gain on this um, actually ended up at the end of the day, he had burned the building down wow. and, and it was a, it was insurance fraud, but the kinds of money you're talking about here, I, I wish I could tell you that these, that it's rare. I mean, the, the high volumes of fraudulent activities and it goes through cycles. Um, you know, you're seeing quite a bit of fraud now uh, as a result of the pandemic. You know, for forensic accountants, this is maybe one of the busiest times we've ever had. And it, had to do, it has to do an awful lot with the hundreds of billions of dollars that have been pumped into the, the economy that were meant to go some, one place, and they didn't all get to that one place. And so there's now a lot of investigations ongoing on in that. But for this kind of a, of a scenario, I, my gut tells me it, it would not be uncommon. And I mean, the number kind of numbers that that you're talking about here are not a big surprise to me.
0: Uh, let's go to, because I know you've studied and, and speak about the cultural issues, psychology of crime, white collar crime. Explain to us the fraud triangle that is bantered about when we talk about this kind of crime.
2: The fraud triangle is really interesting. I've been involved in a uh, over the last 35, 40 years in various kinds of studies. And there is a rule of thumb that's come and they talk about a 10, 80, 10 rule. Essentially 10% of the people are proven regularly to be honest people. Now you'd like to think it'd be a lot. higher, And you'd like to think we're (laughs) all in that 10%, right? Right. Um, but 10% of the people are inherently dishonest. So the, the the people that are inherently honest, you don't want to get a pen back to you. Everything the people that are inherently dishonest, they're going to try and find every which way to have to aggrandize themselves and to make themselves either financially or for whatever or otherwise uh, improve. The other eighty percent are influenced. Most of us fall into the eighty percent, and that eighty percent really t- and that does tie into the fraud triangle. I'll get to that in a second. But that's why when you hear about processes and controls and helping people understand whether or not they do the right thing or the culture of an organization. That's why it's so important. It's the culture in an organization or or the morality of an individual such that you expect them to be doing the right thing. And this is a big question. Does someone cheat for example on their expense reports? And does everybody know that they cheat on their expense reports? You know, and that may seem like a small thing but it leads to bigger things. Nine times out of 10, it leads to bigger things. And it's an indication of broader things. But the fraud triangle itself really talks about a framework uh, and you look at the risk involved with something being able to be undetected or that there may be a a fraud uh, either stealing money or moving, in this instance, trust funds account. And it's about having an opportunity to do it. You know, is the ability to execute your plan without being caught, right? What is the rationalization you can make? You know, in this instance, um, you know, was Alec, was he rationalizing what he was doing in his mind? It's a personal justification for doing bad stuff, and this is this is common throughout almost all scenarios of malfeasance and fraud. And then, what kind of pressure is there? is it a personal pressure? Is it a financial pressure? Is it emotional pressure? When I talk to to my students, I say, you know, what if you had a child and your child needed an operation that was a hundred thousand dollars and you can't think of any other way to get money other than to do something uh, bad and to, to get that money. What are you doing? What are you going to, what kind of decision you're going to make? And that causes people to think through that. But in this instance, the pressure can be self-imposed. And, you know, that goes to where the, where someone's motivations are. And that also goes to, you know, a lot of what's behind white collar crime. I mean, you you will hear that uh, talked about quite a bit.
0: The pressure could be, like you said, keeping up a lifestyle, debt, uh, your image, the way you want to roll through life, you put that pressure on yourself. Not justifying, but that gives you a place to start looking, as you said, to yep. opportunity and rationalization, et cetera. This has been fantastic. Really, I really enjoyed it. James Chip Cottrell, and uh, he has broken down what the, the cool CPAs do. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Well, we've done we've done a lot for the help with the the positioning of the CPA. Maybe we'll be, even get some more people to come into the profession.
0: Thank you very much. And if my CPA is listening. I'm, uh, you're cool too. Don't raise my rate, um, <laughs> Chip. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
2: Anytime. Look forward to talking again. Thanks Thank again. you again.
0: Thanks, Chip. Bye bye. Sounds great. We love to have guests on to help explain some of the things that we are not fully aware of. We don't know everything, that is for sure. And if you have an idea of an expert on something you'd like to hear from, reach out to us through our Facebook page, Murdoch Podcast, or the website com, or Matt Harris Podcast at com. and seeing some people have made some, and we love to hear from people, so what, what's yeah, the latest?
1: We've gotten a lot of great feedback about the guests that we've had on, so that makes us happy because we We love to rely on the experts. We have gotten... I've actually... I thought this was fun. It was said in a nice way that I am now starting to talk fast. We know that Matt has always been a fast (laughs) talker, but now I guess I'm starting to talk fast, so I'm really going to try to slow down.
0: You said that too fast. I couldn't hear you. I'm just kidding. (laughs) We really... Appreciate the feedback and the, the response to the podcast has been bigger and better and much more than we ever expected when we started this thing. I don't know some of you have never heard the story, but we did it at originally. We really thought a handful of our friends might listen, but uh, it's been just insane. And we're grateful to each and every one of you. And again, we will uh, listen to the feedback and try to do better every darn time. All right. We'll talk soon. Rollercoaster prices Supply chain glitches Political unease They do their best to wreck my business plans With so many unknowns How do I know I'm making the right decisions? Aon helps me stay on top of things They have expert points of view On volatility from around the world Paired with local insight That helps me get back on solid ground Better decisions Aeon.